Chapter 5. Searching for the Right Problems to Solve Jethro. Physics. A student calls loudly, Mr. Tull, you never gave us the labs back. Jethro pauses and asks for the student to give him a couple minutes. He clicks on his laptop and loud rock music begins to play in the classroom as the other physics students enter. Some students approach the front desk to ask about grades. Mr. Wilson, the cooperating teacher, sits in the back of the class, grading papers. A few more students approach the table, but most linger near their desks. Some are working on today's bell ringer, projected on the front screen, which reads, What do you believe happens when water changes from gas to liquid? The class of 28 students is talkative and energetic. The period bell rings and the music slowly fades, leaving a silence in the room that does not last long. Jethro says, All right, pass the bell ringers up. Two months into his student teaching, this routine is well established. The students take their seats, but only a handful of note cards are passed forward. Clearly, not all are doing their bell ringers. Jethro holds the note cards and says, All right, everybody's concerned about grades, so let's talk about grades. He has their full attention and says, The labs from yesterday are intended to be included in this grading period. He mentions that there were some misunderstandings in the previous day's lab, for which he feels responsible. That's part of me learning to be a teacher, he explains before promising to clear things up today. He advances to a slide titled, Heat of Fusion Lab. Pointing to the fourth formula on the slide, Jethro states that the equation for percent error he had given them was incorrect because of the way he had written the formula. He talks through the equations for the next ten minutes, and a few students ask clarifying questions, even though it is clear that many more are struggling. Just crank through the numbers and get the answers, Jethro advises. About ten minutes later, after some slides about evaporation and condensation, Jethro asks his students to explain how a glass of water set out on a counter for several days might have no noticeable change in water level. He then walks behind his desk and points to a bowl of water that he says has been sitting out for a few days. Why hasn't it evaporated, he asks. There is no response from the students. Jethro then notes that the water is the same temperature as the room. He puts a thermometer in the water and announces that it reads 23 degrees. One student is incredulous. He shouts, It is not 23 degrees in here. Celsius, Jethro says calmly. Oh, says the student. Jethro waits a moment before presenting the answer on the following slide, namely that the rates of evaporation and condensation are equal, and that the system has reached equilibrium. We have condensation and evaporation occurring simultaneously, he tells the class. He advances to the next slide and begins to discuss boiling. One student waves his hand wildly, and Jethro calls on him. The student asks, If you have 100% pure water, where do the little bubbles come from? Mike's question is a good one, Jethro says, and his response is to explain that steam forms wherever the heat is. Another student adds, it's like evaporating at the bottom. Jethro follows this with an attempt to draw a distinction between evaporation and boiling. He does so, however, without addressing the presence of dissolved gases, or the actual phase transition from a liquid to a gas, stating simply, All these bubbles are energy escaping the water. Jethro keeps the class moving. He posts a slide asking, Why don't the bubbles form until the liquid reaches the boiling point? A number of students raise their hands to offer their own ideas, but during these explanations he has the body language of a radio talk show host waiting for a rambling caller to finish. He is not wholly uninterested in their ideas, he later tells me, but airing them in class this way tests his patience because it takes valuable time away from the rest of the day's agenda. The next slide reads, What happens to the boiling point when the pressure is reduced? Without much fanfare, Jethro walks behind the table and puts a beaker of water on a vacuum pump platform. He then places a thermometer in the beaker and positions a bell jar over the top, sealing it tightly on the platform. A video camera is pointed at the apparatus and a close-up of the beaker is projected on the screen. In a very short amount of time, the water in the beaker begins to boil. In the absence of a heat source, the students are clearly perplexed. One student is vocal in his confusion. So, it's getting hot? he asks. Jethro reads the temperature again, and it is unchanged. 
He does not attempt to conceal his enjoyment. Boiling water in a vacuum at room temperature is a classic physics demonstration, and there is pleasure to be had in watching students attempt to understand what is going on inside the bell jar. After all the students have seen the demonstration, Jethro turns off the pump and opens the valve to let air back into the bell jar. The thermometer on the video monitor indicates a sudden decrease in the temperature of the water. Taking notice, Jethro indicates that this temperature drop confirms what he has been saying about energy escaping. One perplexed student, still looking at the beaker that had been full of, quote, boiling, unquote, water just moments ago, asks, what is the technical definition of boil, then? Jethro's response is tentative. I guess it means that you're applying enough pressure in order for the water to escape. The next ten minutes are consumed by another bell jar demonstration that simply does not work. Jethro places a small amount of water on top of an upside-down styrofoam cup on the platform, secures the bell jar on top, and turns on the pump. Students sit and wait for something to happen, but the only visible action on top of the cup is the fizzling of little bubbles, making the water look like a soft drink. All of those bubbles are energy escaping from the water, Jethro tells the class. Mr. Wilson notices the demonstration is not working and comes up front to help, but it appears there is simply too much water on the upside-down cup. I'm beginning to think this isn't going to work, Jethro eventually says with resignation. What's supposed to happen, he finally tells the class, is the water is supposed to freeze. Mr. Wilson asks one student to feel the temperature of the water on the cup, who reports to the class that it is very cold. Six more students come up front to dip their fingers in the chilly water. The class ends with a surge of students to the front of the room, all asking about uncertain grades. As the next period students enter, some of them join the swelling crowd at the teacher's desk to compete for Jethro's attention. Jethro, a self-identified white male in his early 50s, came to the SAMTEP program at Brigstown University after retiring from a career in the information technology industry. It was a homecoming of sorts because he had grown up in the area and had graduated from Brigstown University in the 1970s with one of the school's first degrees in computer science, as well as another in electrical engineering. Jethro's first job after graduation had taken him to a metropolitan area in the southeastern United States which I refer to here as Mountain County, where he lived and worked for the next 30 years. He had his first taste of teaching when he was required to conduct technical workshops for his job. An involvement in organizing and coaching a youth bowling league had led him to consider teaching as a second career. Relocating to the upper Midwestern United States from Mountain County held a number of challenges for Jethro, many of which influenced his experiences in the teacher education program. First and foremost, leaving the corporate world and enrolling as a full-time student necessitated substantial changes in both his personal and professional life. These were clearly challenges he welcomed as part of the switch to teaching, and he chose to pursue teacher certification in both physics and computer science. He arrived in Briggstown a year prior to entering the SAMTEP program, and enrolled at the university as a special student to fulfill the science content courses required for certification. He embraced being a college student again, and even lived in the university dormitories with undergraduates. His second challenge concerned the fact that the city had changed since his youth, and as the most senior member of the science teacher cohort, he continued to profess feeling both a geographic and generational disconnectedness, even after his second year back in Briggstown. Finally, Jethro suffered from a number of health issues that, though not directly attributable to moving north, were certainly exacerbated by the time he spent in Briggstown's aging school buildings. His classroom for student teaching seemed particularly problematic in this regard. Jethro possessed a good-natured and infectiously optimistic personal demeanor. Indeed, participants in the study were offered the opportunity to select their own pseudonyms, and Jethro did so, selecting the name Jethro Tull after one of his favorite progressive rock bands of the 70s. He was described by one of his instructors as a smart guy, looking for the fun side of things, yet he's still serious. I think he's one of those student teachers who's going to have a good time with this, because life's a playground, and science especially is a playground for him. Jethro often commented that what he learned from teacher education was of great value, 
and he seemed to draw on the approaches and methods advocated by professors more frequently than others in his cohort did, though he sometimes did so uncritically. He was diligent with his coursework, genuinely inquisitive about a broad range of topics, and meticulously organized. Like the other Briggstown University students, Jethro participated in a daily practicum experience at Moshi Middle School for 10 weeks during the fall of 2008. In this experience, he had been part of a group with three other SAMTEP students, Armando, Lily, and Jasmine, assigned to a sixth grade science class. As noted in the previous chapter, Jethro's practicum class contained little racial diversity. All but one of the students were African American. Jethro's start in the classroom that October had been particularly rough, and he used words such as nightmare and meltdown to describe his first experiences in front of the sixth graders. His university supervisor corroborated this view, as did my own observations. Jethro and his supervisor both explained the issue as one of classroom control, exacerbated by Jethro's tendency to speak louder and become visibly angry when students were talkative or off-task. The significance of classroom management issues to Jethro's experience in middle school cannot be overstated. Most of his spoken communication and actions during his practicum teaching focused on securing individual and class compliance as a precursor to instruction. Jethro collaborated closely with his teammates in planning lessons, yet he reported feeling constrained by the curriculum as well as by the cooperating teacher's insistence on sticking to established procedures, particularly when he had his own ideas about improving lessons. Over the course of the practicum semester, Jethro adopted a number of management strategies and suggestions from his university instructors and team members. And, although he quite visibly grew more confident after his initial stumbles, he remained somewhat rigid in his expectations concerning student engagement with the subject matter. On the one hand, he was very accepting of the fact that students needed to talk with one another about the content. On the other, he frequently sought the attention of the whole class before continuing to transmit the content. These contradictory messages often led to conflict with students, which usually escalated out of control. The following spring, Jethro was placed in a physics classroom at Briggstown Language Academy, a public magnet school specializing in world languages and housing middle as well as high school students. Jethro was assigned four physics classes, for which he assumed responsibility at the start of the semester in January. His cooperating teacher, Mr. Wilson, retained a single ninth grade physical science class to ensure Jethro's workload was not overwhelming. In a city rife with residential segregation, Briggstown Language Academy was unquestionably one of the most racially and economically diverse high schools in the district, as shown in Table 5.1. Total enrollment, 1,083. American Indian, 0.3%. Asian, 6.8%. Black, 51.9%. Hispanic, 10.3%. White, 30.7%. Additionally, it was considered an academically successful school, with average state test scores regularly among the highest in the city. Mr. Wilson shared Jethro's passion for physics and for dramatic demonstrations in particular. Although Jethro was able to draw from Mr. Wilson's repertoire of resources, activities, and labs, there was minimal communication between them about Jethro's teaching. Jethro regularly showed his lessons to Mr. Wilson before teaching them, but this practice was more about gaining approval than receiving feedback. This lack of guidance and support was clear to me in my observations of Jethro's teaching, as if being a cooperating teacher simply meant handing over the reins of the classroom to someone else. After student teaching was complete, Jethro did not mince words. I got more assistance and encouragement from the substitute teachers than I got from him, he told me. One of the most direct consequences of returning to college for Jethro was that despite his engineering background, the experience of taking science courses was largely one of learning new content. He noted that the field of genetics had advanced tremendously in the 30 years since he had taken college-level biology, and in physics and chemistry courses he found himself with a new appreciation for the underlying mathematics in relearning topics he thought he had previously mastered. An overarching conception for Jethro was that teaching is primarily the act of conveying subject matter to students, and this idea did not appear to change substantively over the course of his program. Given this conception of teaching and struggling with the content as he did, 
Jethro remained wary about the prospect that a student might ask him a basic science question that he would be unable to answer. Throughout his time in the SAMTEP program, Jethro expressed the strong belief that a thorough and flexible knowledge of mathematics was required to learn physics at the high school level. His understanding of physics as a discipline was firmly rooted in his experiences as an electrical engineer, and more recently, as a returning student taking upper-level physics courses. Jethro initially felt that a mathematical approach to teaching physics was both the most genuine and efficient strategy. He was open to using a more conceptual approach, though he believed that doing so would require hands-on activities and take up valuable time. The question of how much mathematics is needed to understand certain topics in physics has been debated in the field of physics education for decades. A robust program of conceptual physics emerged during the 1970s and 1980s and remains strong today, championed by physics educator Paul Hewitt through his Conceptual Physics Textbook and Supporting Materials, Hewitt, 1992, a later edition of which was the text for Jethro's physics classes. Jethro's conception regarding what it took to make what he called real physics into conceptual physics was a process of what he repeatedly referred to as dumbing down, a perspective echoed by his cooperating teacher. From the perspective of Hewitt and the conceptual physics community, however, conceptual understandings are portrayed as foundational to understanding physics, a view well supported by research, Hestenis, Wells, and Swackhammer, 1992. Hewitt also emphasizes the role of equations in a conceptual approach as guides for understanding the underlying physics, and has argued that equations ought not to be used solely for the purpose of solving numerical problems. Hewitt, 2011. Jethro had expected the mathematics in the course to be unproblematic for students because it was not calculus-based, and he assumed that students would be well prepared to work with equations and variables. When his students encountered difficulties in basic algebra and in solving simple word problems, his lessons often took much longer than expected. As he recounted, My original idea was that the math at an algebra level was within the capability of all the kids in the class. As we moved on, and I spent literally a week when we were doing waves, having the kids look at word problems and pick out what was frequency, what was period, what was wavelength, and solving simple formulas, they couldn't do it. Well, when I got to the waves, we simplified it even more, and the kids were just not capable of reading two sentences and picking out the key terms and what they mean. And I couldn't bridge that gap. So I knew that doing mathematics in the class from that point on, it it just wasn't going to happen. As the end of the year approached, Jethro was frustrated by the fact that he was not able to cover topics in sufficient depth, simply due to time constraints. It had been the mathematics, not the hands-on activities, that had challenged him the most. Jethro interpreted his students' mathematical difficulties as a form of curricular friction, slowing everything down. His belief that mathematics ought to be a gatekeeper into physics strengthened, and his ideas about the nature of his discipline had ultimately led him to conclude that students' knowledge of mathematics is the limiting factor that determines which physics topics can be taught. Rather than recast his understanding of physics to accommodate multiple pathways for learning, he expressed a preference for students weak in mathematics to be scared away from taking the course. I wish to be fair to Jethro here and indicate that he regularly took responsibility for teaching students the mathematics they did not know and sought support from other math teachers in the school to learn how to do this. He often employed the time-consuming strategy of breaking down problems into smaller and smaller chunks until the individual pieces were manageable. From my perspective, it was somewhat like transmitting a novel by Morse code. Jethro's students were rarely painted the big picture or given an opportunity to develop conceptual understandings. To Jethro, learning physics consisted primarily of following a well-worn path to understanding that led through advanced mathematics. This rigidity and knowledge of his own subject matter made it difficult for him to consider the alternate pathways to understanding physics that his students might travel. In our conversations over the 13 months I followed him in the SAMTEP program, Jethro rarely referred to race, ethnicity, or culture, unless explicitly asked. More commonly, when discussing the salience of diversity in the classroom, he would use the word heritage and occasionally the word background as proxy labels for race, ethnicity, and culture. 
He expressed a desire for the demographic question, such as those on applications or the census, to give him the opportunity to claim his Eastern European heritage. He would, however, always answer white because, quote, as far as heritage, you know what they're getting at, unquote. He recognized that the major problems associated with racism had not been solved, but often used language that tended to downplay the salience of race in a given situation. Pollock, 2004. In fact, he seemed hesitant to assign race itself any importance at all, often seeking other variables besides race to explain disparate treatment or bias in situations, both hypothetical and real. His comments about his 30-year residence in Mountain County are instructive on this point. Mountain County was one of the places Jaspin, 2007, profiled to document the expulsion of the black population that had occurred there in 1912 and attract the reverberating consequences of this, quote, racial cleansing, unquote, event into the present. Despite its relative proximity to a metropolitan area in the southern United States with a majority of African Americans in its population, Mountain County has been, and remains today, predominantly white. In the 1980s, Mountain County attracted national attention when two white supremacist groups clashed with civil rights demonstrators in a series of protests that eventually led to a First Amendment case in the U.S. Supreme Court. Jethro compared living in Mountain County during this time to growing up in Briggstown during the late 1960s, when racial tensions over segregated housing policies escalated and the National Guard was mobilized in an attempt to avert the urban unrest flaring across the nation. The community that I lived in, he said, when I moved there, there was not an African American in the community at all. None. I lived in Mountain County. It made the news and it was ugly, very ugly. The African Americans would bust themselves into the county and hold demonstrations and so on. And this was like the KKK headquarters in the state. If you wanted to go into town just to sit on the sidelines for the excitement, power to you. But that was ugly. It was just like when I grew up here in the 60s. I didn't know enough about it when I was in the 60s, and in the 80s I was a mature adult. I didn't think much of what was going on. Why should people be treated like that? I thought, man, just no way. This passage, as well as others from our conversations, offer evidence that Jethro associated race with notions of conflict, and that he made a distinction between race and the concept of heritage, which he perceived as more benign. In reading this account, Jethro confirmed that this indeed had been his perspective. More will be said below about Jethro's observational, as opposed to participatory, stance towards issues of social inequality. Jethro voiced optimism that segregation was less of an issue in Briggstown than it had been in Mountain County, though he admitted this view might have had something to do with his proximity to the university's neighborhood. In fact, shortly before he relocated from the South, Briggstown had been named in one study as the most residentially segregated metropolitan area in the nation, Iceland, Weinberg, Steinmetz, and the United States Bureau of the Census, 2002. The idea of contemporary discrimination operating systemically on such a large scale seemed implausible to him. Consequently, Jethro viewed residential and regional segregation patterns as either the result of self-selection or randomness. This outlook seemed to hold for all of his conceptions about why certain demographic patterns existed, both in and beyond schools. Like many pre-service teachers, Jethro expressed a preference for seeing all students as individuals and resisted categorizing students by racial or ethnic group membership, Payne, 1990, though occasionally he did so. For example, during our initial interview, Jethro said, From the student groups I've worked with, I don't see many minority students who are interested in science, interested in math, and taking the advanced classes that get them into the college placement programs. Describing the characteristics of a particular group was not problematic for Jethro, as long as the description was based on his own experiences. Consequently, his ideas about the nature of racism led him to ascribe minority student placement in math and science courses to the motivations of individual students, rather than to institutional or systemic explanations. Gamorin, 1992, Oaks, 2005. Jethro's conceptions about the pedagogical implications of diversity were situated firmly in the task of ensuring student engagement. 
Responding to the interview question in which I asked how he might approach a group of non-participating Native American students in the back of his classroom, Jethro spoke earnestly about getting all students involved in learning. If a student is in class and you can't find some way to engage them, and you just think of them as, that's the way they are, let them be, they can't learn. When pressed further about what he would do specifically for this particular group of students, he reaffirmed his inclination to deal first with students individually, and then said that he would likely tailor the curriculum to meet their needs by doing something special for them. Other than including some historical content that related to the group somehow, he was uncertain what this something special might look like. Jethro also felt that issues of diversity had little to do with teaching physics. When I first posed the hypothetical Van de Graaff generator scenario to him, Jethro erupted with laughter. He was admittedly unprepared for such a question and viewed it as a bizarre student misconception. Jethro stated, Hair is hair though he admitted that it was possible that hair products or styles could conceivably influence the effect of electrostatic charges on hair. Why would my hair be different from anybody else's hair, he said. I'd have to do a few questions and explore why they have a feeling that race has anything to do with hair in conducting electricity. Though this statement could be interpreted in multiple ways, it appeared to me that he exhibited an unwillingness to consider the possibility of race as a potential factor in this demonstration. For Jethro, at least in this early point of his teacher education program, race was about the past, implied a potential for conflict, and had little salience in physics. One other conception about teaching that continued to surface during my conversations with Jethro over the course of the year was that student engagement is necessary if teaching and learning are to occur. Yet his conception of what constituted student engagement in a lesson changed over the course of his two field experiences. Although engagement remained for Jethro an effect achieved by external efforts at motivation by the teacher, he shifted from viewing engagement as enticement to learn to a more expanded notion of engagement as ongoing attention to the content of the lesson. During his practicum and continuing into his first month of student teaching, Jethro's opening activity usually involved having students answer a trivia question. His conception of engagement required students to be connected somehow to the class and the teacher so that learning could occur. Therefore, Jethro did not perceive a need for his bell ringers to relate to the content. They only had to be something fun or interesting to catch his students' attention. This was a strategy advocated and modeled weekly by Jethro's instructor at the start of each science methods class. In the second month of student teaching, Jethro began to regularly use questions that directly related to the topic of the day's lesson. This represented a broader strategy for getting his students connected to the science content and not just to him personally. The openers were still designed to grab student attention, though now they had become part of a daily routine, intended to get students thinking about physics. Jethro and I speculated together on what had brought about this change, and he pointed back to the group planning sessions during the Moshi Middle School experience as the source of this idea. Jethro's use of music to start each class was representative of his original view of engagement as enticement to learn, but two additional pedagogical rationales emerged for this practice that had not been evident earlier. To Jethro, the end of a song represented the moment of transition from the hallway to the classroom, and he would begin his lesson shortly afterward. Additionally, he felt that the opening music offered an opportunity to build relationships with his students. In his youth, Jethro had worked as a DJ, and he was upfront about the fact that playing music for others was a way of sharing his authentic self with his students. He often accepted their suggestions for songs, and this gave him a chance to have conversations with his students about something other than physics. In his final interview, he stated directly, You can spout off facts, and just because you're doing your job doesn't mean any learning is occurring. You have to engage the students. If there's no engagement, then you're really not teaching. Over his year in the SAMTEP program, engagement had shifted to become not just a precursor to teaching, but part of teaching itself. Though Jethro had been trained as an engineer, he had little experience with scientific practice and the ways in which scientific knowledge is generated. Throughout his practicum in student teaching, Jethro described the scientific method and approaches to inquiry generally as a process of conducting experiments and thinking logically. 
yet his notion of what constituted an experiment was largely atheoretical. Jethro was not the only one in his cohort who seemed to possess such a, quote, folk theory of scientific inquiry, Winchettel, 2004, Winchettel and Thompson, 2006, and he often seemed to conflate the terms experiment, demonstration, and activity. Throughout this study, Jethro's organizing conception about generating knowledge was that inquiry is doing something to see what happens. In his practicum lesson on the scientific method, he concluded the lesson by saying, this is how real-life experiments go. We set them up with a little bit of knowledge, and we see how it goes. To Jethro, inquiry represented a process for finding things out, but in practice, his efforts to enact inquiry often remained unconnected to the learning goals of the lesson or to the big ideas in the discipline. Being active in a science classroom was an end in itself, and Jethro considered his students' arrival at the correct conclusions in these activities as a form of positive reinforcement that would keep his students engaged and motivated in science. This view of inquiry can be contrasted with one put forward by recent science education reports and reform documents, which stress a role for scientific inquiry as part of model construction and theory refinement, rather than just hands-on activity. National Research Council, 2007-2012. Duschel and Grandy, 2008, describe this as a paradigmatic shift in the role of the laboratory in science education, depicting it as a change from, quote, a view of science that emphasizes observation and experimentation, to a view that stresses theory and model building and revision, page 7. Jethro's opportunities to learn to teach this way were constrained by his teacher education program's presentation of inquiry, which emphasized activities and learning through exploration. Initially, Jethro expressed a preference for hands-on activities because he felt they better engaged students. Even when science activities were presented as fun, Jethro believed that they also had to be experienced in the proper way. As a result, he felt it necessary to provide detailed instructions to students for each activity. His orientation to student inquiry as directed activity changed as a direct result of his methods of teaching science classes, which emphasized the use of the five-stage learning cycle model, Bybee, 1997, that encouraged teachers to let their students have some experience with phenomena before engaging in direct study. This approach was promoted by the SAMTEP program as a flexible way to think about lesson planning. It was not considered a rigid template. Moving into student teaching, the notion of student inquiry as exploration seemed to guide many of Jethro's choices concerning hands-on activities. In the middle school, this practice had fueled Jethro's classroom management difficulties, but he attempted exploration activities again in his high school setting because of the high regard he placed on what he had learned in his SAMTEP methods courses. Eventually, Jethro came to the realization that though exploration was still desirable in the learning process, it was a luxury, requiring both time and resources. He returned to providing written directions for activities, but also tried to leave space for students to play with the phenomena. One example of this student inquiry as bounded exploration was the circuit lab Jethro did during the electricity unit. Though students were permitted to play around with the wires, batteries, and bulbs, the tasks he set for them were clearly defined. Interestingly, and perhaps not accidentally, the conception that inquiry is doing something to see what happens also described Jethro's approach to improving his practice as a teacher. His preference for addressing classroom problems was to tinker a bit and, quote, try something new, unquote, rather than to re-examine personal theories and assumptions about his practice. A number of his responses to hypothetical teaching scenarios, including doing something special for particular groups of students, were consistent with such a definition of inquiry. One obvious example of his approach to inquiry in his own practice occurred when his physics demonstration failed to work as planned, a common occurrence. Jethro saw these moments as an opportunity for students to engage in problem-solving. He would solicit students' help in trying to figure out what went wrong. His approach to inquiry in these situations was generally consistent with a conception of inquiry as a process of trying something new to see what works. Rarely did he approach these situations systematically or attempt to solve problems by appealing to theoretical knowledge. Overall, there was little evidence for change in Jethro's organizing conceptions about student diversity or its pedagogical implications throughout his teacher education program. 
Yet, there exists some evidence for the emergence of new conceptions about the pedagogical implications of student diversity that were not evident earlier. Although Jether's conceptions of race and ethnicity existed under his umbrella of heritage, the idea of culture and its implications for the classroom proved to be more challenging for him to understand. Jethro told me that culture seemed to represent, quote, the true part of a stereotype, unquote. In the following example, Jethro deployed culture as a concept to explain the behavior of his Hmong students in class, but then retreated to the more familiar idea of heritage. I think as a rule, he said, kids are now much more social than kids in the past were, and boys and girls talk equally as much. I don't think that's something that's differentiated by sexes. Might be by race, possibly. Might be by culture. I've got a few Hmong students in my class, and they rarely speak out in class. They rarely talk in class. So if I had, for instance, a classroom full of a particular culture, it might be more so or not more so, but that would have to do more than with heritage than anything else. Though he rarely used the word culture in our conversations, he often did so in his course assignments. The semester he was student teaching at Briggstown Academy, he was also taking an evening SAMTEP course called Change Strategies in Urban Education, commonly referred to by students and faculty in the SAMTEP program as, quote, the diversity class, unquote. The course was taught by an adjunct who was also an administrator in the Briggstown public school system. One of the primary texts for the course was Ruby Payne's 2005 A Framework for Understanding Poverty, a work that remains popular in teacher professional development circles, despite increasing criticism that Payne's culture of poverty construct glosses over social inequalities and reinforces stereotypes about the poor. Gorski, 2006. Sato and Lenzmeyer, 2009. Jethro indicated that he felt that learning the cultures of his students was important, but what this meant exactly remained uncertain to him. He spoke of culture as though it were an inherent characteristic of a person, and found it plausible that drawing on these characteristics to inform one's teaching would be a productive strategy, though he admitted being at a loss on how to do it. For example, in this reading response to a chapter in Payne's book, Jethro struggled with the pedagogical implications of having identified a particular cultural characteristic. He wrote, Understanding poverty suggests using checklists, having students write the steps out, and use procedural self-talk as possible solutions. None of these seem to work with my students, and I understand there is little procedural memory used in poverty, but nothing I've tried seems to instill the necessity of completing step X before moving on to step Y. For Jethro, the previously puzzling concept of culture had come to hold promise as a resource for maintaining student engagement a task still central to his practice. Interestingly, Jethro did not invoke culture to explain student failure within school structures, an argument commonly voiced by prospective teachers. Haberman, 2007. Ladson Billings, 2006. For the time being, his explanations for student achievement remained primarily individualistic, but the conception that culture is the true part of a stereotype may prove too tempting as a ready-made idea for explaining student failure in the future especially among students he identifies as culturally different from himself. From the start, Jethro expressed a desire to form positive relationships with his students. His previous work with youth in the bowling league led him to think about some aspects of teaching as coaching. This was particularly true when it came to his attempts to motivate students to learn, and he often employed a conjoling style in his teaching, using phrases like, come on, you can do this, Relating to his students proved to be a surprisingly difficult challenge for Jethro, for reasons that included generational, geographical, and cultural factors, along with all the other personal, interpersonal, and social variables that influence human relationship building. Despite repeated attempts, his efforts to form positive relationships with students bore limited fruit, and he felt this keenly throughout his middle and high school experiences. It actually came as a surprise to Jethro at the completion of student teaching that students wished to sign his yearbook, and he took this as evidence that perhaps he had formed better relationships with students than he had assumed. Jethro's initial conception, that youth culture is relatively uniform, seemed to exert a strong influence over his approach to building relationships with students. 
It came as a surprise to me that, during practicum, Jethro appeared not to make developmental distinctions between middle school, high school, and undergraduate students. Being on a university campus for a year had helped him to become familiar with the interests of contemporary college students, and he had simply extended this understanding of youth culture to his middle school students. He regularly chose examples and analogies that would have been more appropriate for undergraduate college students than for adolescents. Though not disagreeing with this notion when I presented it to him, Jethro maintained that it was more a matter of geography than age or culture. They talk about events that are happening locally here, he said. I don't have a clue. Even things that I was familiar with in this city 35 years ago, they aren't here anymore. So they talk about nightlife and things like that. I don't have a clue what they're talking about anymore. From a pedagogical perspective, Jethro also saw the increasing value of tapping into student interests as a way to get students engaged in science. The trouble for Jethro was identifying those interests in the first place. During one of his middle school lessons, Jethro used the example of a video game he had seen his college roommate playing to discuss the scientific method. The students were clearly confused by his instructions to figure out the goal of a game most had clearly never played. Using a supposedly relevant example, such as a video game, ultimately didn't work, and this was genuinely puzzling for Jethro. Rather than probing the interests of his students to develop appropriate examples, Jethro drew on his own impressions of his students' interests and sense of what was relevant. To put it mildly, these impressions were not always accurate. As he moved from the middle school to the high school, working with a different age group provided Jethro with some solid experiences on which to base his decisions of relevance. He also became more aware that some of his teaching practices were not well suited to his students. For example, he noted, I've been teaching adults so long that my humor with students isn't always appropriate. He appreciated, in a way he had previously not, that his efforts to form positive relationships with students were hindered by the fact that aside from music and sports, he often didn't know what his students were talking about. This, he recognized, made it difficult to tap into their interests. His conception concerning the uniformity of youth culture was eventually replaced by the idea that youth culture is differentiated by what is appropriate for different age levels, particularly within schools. Although such an idea may appear obvious from the perspective of basic developmental psychology, to Jethro, this realization represented a significant insight into student behavior. Notably, it was also a perspective that did not invoke the concepts of race, ethnicity, or broader notions of culture, which held little explanatory power for him anyway. In both his practicum and student teaching placements, it appeared as if student diversity held little relevance for Jethro. In talking about what he learned as a result of his middle school experiences, he ascribed his difficulties primarily as they related to students' age levels and the challenge of teaching sixth graders. Drawing on students' culture for curriculum or pedagogy, or as a response for understanding and solving classroom problems, was something he had not been prepared to do. During the second interview, between his practicum and student teaching, Jethro had laughed again at the Van de Graaff scenario, and was even more emphatic about the irrelevance of students' race and ethnicity in the physics demonstration. I remember I had the same reaction, he said. Why? Why would you think it would perform differently on anybody's hair except possibly if there were some coating on the hair? So my question would have to be, what would lead you to believe there's a difference? I prodded him further and asked how he would respond if his student said, Come on, Mr. Tull, white people's hair and black people's hair are different, right? He responded, And I would say from a biological standpoint, I don't believe they are. The color may be a little different, they may be a little thicker, they may be a little thinner, but they have the same types of material in them. And again, I go back to the same thing. If you use a hair product in your hair, that may make a difference, but that's got nothing to do with race. What is interesting about this is that Jethro appears to have a greater confidence in his knowledge of physiology than his teaching or his personal history would support. He indicated that he had taken his first university biology course only the previous year, and, in the initial interview, his discussion of this experience offers a glimpse of his view of the discipline. I found that in several cases the stuff I was getting was new, he said. It didn't exist 35 years ago when I was doing this stuff in high school and college. Biology has changed so much. The biggest example I can give you is genetics. What was there to really teach when I was a high school student? 
There wasn't that much knowledge. There wasn't even that much knowledge about the cell. Jethro's insistence that the irrelevance of race to this demonstration seems driven not by his knowledge of the underlying science, but by his desire that it should not matter. Nonetheless, he recognized that such a question about the role of race in the Van de Graaff physics demonstration might provide an opportunity to study something of interest to the students while simultaneously addressing a perceived administrative requirement. It might be an opportunity, he said, to investigate a little bit and learn a little bit more about the heritages in the classroom. What kind of conceptions do the kids in the classroom have about some of the heritages that might be available? We could spend some time exploring some of that. Give me an opportunity to do that multicultural thing, as far as the classroom goes. I'd have to make a sidetrack on it, but that doesn't bother me any. If we have an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the backgrounds, our heritage, why not? I don't see why I couldn't waste a day and do that. You know, it's a goal somewhere in one of the standards, so gee, I get to knock that one off. Check that one off the list somewhere. Although he did not necessarily view such an opportunity as relevant to physics or having inherent value, he did view it as a way to motivate students and encourage their participation in the class. He could also, quote, do that multicultural thing, unquote, which to him represented an externally required imposition on his classroom time. When I asked what concerns he might have in taking this approach, he stated, I just have to make sure that we stay focused and there's no slurs that are thrown around the classroom. This notion of student diversity as primarily a source of conflict was still evident in his student teaching at Briggstown Language Academy. He observed self-segregation among the students when they got to choose their own groups and noted, there are individuals that cross racial boundaries in groups, and those are things you have to watch in class. In his Change Strategies in Urban Education class, Jethro was assigned an article, Key 2003, that explored the multicultural education concepts of content integration and equity pedagogy in the context of teaching science to African-American students. In a written reaction to the piece, Jethro stated that the idea of integrating multicultural content into science made little sense to him. Though he perceived value in it, as he put it, quote, rewriting science topic statements to include scientists with specific heritages, unquote, he concluded, in my opinion, this is not practical. I can and do include heritages with long histories and science achievement. In physics, very little time is spent dealing with modern physics, and it's usually left as the last unit to be covered, in case there is little time left. There are a few scientists of African American and Hispanic heritage in modern physics, and these can be highlighted. This means teaching content out of order. As I completed this reading, I couldn't help but think how impractical this is in the field that I teach. The concept of adapting his pedagogy for students of different demographic categories was even more difficult for him to grasp. He wrote that he wished more examples had been provided in the reading, other than, quote, using sports-related vignettes to teach physical science, unquote, and ultimately protested. We're left to invent these things for ourselves, he wrote. Even the sports example is puzzling to him because, though it seems potentially relevant to students, it simply does not connect to Jethro's notion of heritage in any specific way. To Jethro, multicultural education means exploring heritage in a school context, a definition that for him leaves little room for physics. Yet, for the first time, there is evidence that he is aware of another way of viewing multicultural education, even if he is not quite certain what it entails. When we talked in June, Jethro described his school's diversity as, quote, a real positive thing, unquote and saw this diversity benefiting himself as a teacher. He noted, My class was so diverse, I got to experience a little bit of everything. These benefits of diversity apparently extended to the students themselves, as was evident when Jethro used his cooperating teacher's Van de Graaff generator during a lesson on electrostatics. Appreciating the irony, he reported that the question he had found so funny in the previous two interviews had actually been posed to him by a student during this demonstration. Jethro recounted the day's lesson to me. Will it affect my hair differently than your hair, was the way it came up. I said, well, let's look and see how it affects my hair first, so you guys can see. So you're going to come up and volunteer, right? Yeah, no problem. Okay, we can do that. Now we need some other comparisons. Well, our hair is both short. Mine is gray. Yours is not. What's the difference? I use nothing on my hair. You probably use something else. 
Well, I had plenty of girls with long hair, so I could go with that. But I had... This class was so mixed. I had Hmong in this class. I had Spanish heritage. I have African-American heritage. I had a lot to choose from. But all the boys predominantly had short hair. I had one boy with medium-length hair, and fortunately, he volunteered. Although this conversation held no discomfort for Jethro, as it might have for others, the question of the role of race as a factor in the demonstration was quickly subsumed into a long list of other potential influences. Yet, for the first time, he was aware of race and ethnicity affecting his teaching in the present, not in the past, as his conception of heritage would have demanded. Furthermore, even though the salience of race and ethnicity was downplayed, it was not denied, and remained for Jethro a variable connected unambiguously to the physics content of his lesson. After sending Jethro a draft of his case, we met in the basement eatery of the Briggstown University Student Center. Over pizza and drinks, he told me, It was difficult to read some of those things about myself, but once I thought about it and decided it was the truth, I kept reading. He told me that he had completed his physics certification program and planned to continue earning his master's degree, but reported that the school had not lived up to its end of the bargain by providing him coursework and fieldwork in earning his other teacher certification in computer science teaching. His frustrations with the university bureaucracy had been a frequent topic of our conversations throughout the year. Finally, Jethro set legal action into motion against the university and very quickly he was offered a computer science student teaching assignment for the coming fall semester. Though this meant delaying his job search, Jethro accepted the student teaching assignment. At this writing, he is teaching high school physics, chemistry, and physical science in the Briggstown Public School System. Jethro's case serves as a reminder of some of the challenges faced by second career teachers. For him, these challenges included learning new science content and forging relationships with students in the absence of a shared generational culture. Being an older adult in a physically stressful job within a school environment had also put strains on his health, impacting his opportunities to learn to teach in his student placement. However, one of the most striking aspects of Jethro's case concerns the way in which he framed his own organizing conceptions about teaching and students. Although teacher educators and policymakers attend to factors with clearly defined, quote, achievement gaps, unquote, such as race, ethnicity, and class, Jethro focused more on the geographical and generational distinctions he perceived between himself and his students. He all but dismissed efforts to draw attention to issues of race in his teacher education program because he simply didn't see a connection between physics and his conception of diversity as historical heritage. Although students in the Briggstown SAMTEP program were often prompted to examine their ideas about science pedagogy in their methods classes, Jethro's own ideas about diversity were not elicited and held up to examination in the same manner. Had this occurred, his instructors might have been better able to reframe his notions of heritage into more powerful analytic lenses that would have allowed him to learn more as a teacher. In particular, his view of the problem of geographical and generational differences between him and his students offered an entry point for Jethro to study the students, an important aspect of effective teaching, Darling Hammond, 2006. Developing a deeper understanding of his students' communication styles, as well as the ways they thought about and used mathematics in their lives, would likely have been of great benefit to Jethro. Yet, without these explicit connections in his teacher education program, Jethro was, as he put it, left to invent these things for himself.